Well, welcome to all of you. This is a big day. You are embarking upon your legal educations. And not only that, you are doing it at one of the best law schools in the country. So good for all of you. It's pretty exciting stuff. So you've done the hard work that was required to get here. And now what Professor Heightens and I want to talk to you about is the hard work that is coming your way now that you will be in law school classes. So in particular, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Socratic method and what you need to do to prepare for these classes so that uh, they aren't so difficult, so that you are ready to go. So let me ask this question. Uh, by a show of hands, let me see how many of you have seen either the paper chase or legally blonde. Put your hand up in the air. Everybody, and how many of you thought, yeah, I don't actually want to be in a class like that. Let me see the hands for, yeah, so that's, few people as well. So if you've seen those movies, then you have seen Hollywood's idea of what the Socratic method is. The Socratic method is the signature pedagogy of law schools. It is the way that most law schools teach first-year law students. So the idea is that you read judicial opinions for class called cases, and then you come into class, the professor calls on you, and then you have a dialogue, a conversation, and in that conversation, you are teasing out various aspects of the law. But it can feel kind of intimidating because you are doing that in front of a room full of classmates, and a lot of people understandably feel anxious about speaking in public. So we've been teaching this way since the 1870s. Before 1870, if you'd come to law school back then, you would have gone to class and been completely passive. You could have sat there and it would have been a lecture class. You would have only gone to law school for two years. And you wouldn't have any exams or papers. You'd get to just kind of self-report your progress. And at the end of two years, ta-da, you're a lawyer. So that might, be, uh, that might sound pretty good to you right now. Uh, but I'll tell you that it doesn't produce a lot of really excellent lawyers. So starting in 1870, the dean of, of the law school at Harvard decided that he would teach in a different way. And of course, where Harvard goes, everyone follows. And so this changed legal education. So this is where we came up with this idea of the Socratic method. And the idea of it is that by reading these judicial opinions, by really immersing yourselves in the law itself, you're better able to understand how lawyers argue, uh, how judges make decisions, uh, and by coming to class and explaining these cases back to us, you're learning how to think like a lawyer. It's also an important rhetorical part of your education. So no matter what kind of law you end up practicing, you will find that you have to speak ideas out loud that sometimes are tricky, sometimes are complicated, you have to explain things to colleagues and clients and so forth, and sometimes you have to do it under tremendous pressure. And so you need to know how to say what you think under stress in a way that other people can understand. The Socratic method is one of the ways that you can practice that skill in law school. So that's why we keep doing it. Um, and you're also going to find that once you progress past your 1L year, you're going to encounter plenty of classes that don't use the Socratic method. So you'll end up in smaller classes, you'll end up in seminars, clinics, uh, experiential classes, which are the kind of classes that I teach. Most of those classes don't use the Socratic method at all. But, but since it is something you will encounter this year, and since there's kind of a mystique about it, that's what we'll focus on, trying to demystify for you. All right, so what are my tips to you about handling the Socratic method? So my first tip to you is, in order to be successful, you are going to have to keep up with the reading. 
you are going to find that law school is different from college. So when I was in college, I was an English major. Um, and I had a lot of reading. I was reading books. But I would sometimes go to class and hear lectures about books that I hadn't actually read yet. And I'd take notes, and it was fine, because I wasn't going to be called on or anything. And then by the end of the semester, I'd catch up. I'd read the books. Then I'd look back at my notes and think, oh, OK, that's what that was about. You know? And then I'd, I'd go take the exam, and it was completely fine. Law school is different. In law school, the learning is cumulative. So what you're going to find is that you're going to master a principle on a particular week, and then the next week, it's going to build on what you learned the week before. So if you fall behind in the reading, you're going to fall behind in your understanding. It's going to be very, very difficult to keep up in the class if you haven't kept up with the reading. So that is my first tip to you. You've got to keep up with the reading. Now, for today, we asked you to read the case of Lucy versus Zemmer. And you may have observed from that experience that it can be hard to do this reading. The language is tricky. Sometimes cases are very dry. They're very complicated. It is unfamiliar. So we have all had that experience of reading a case and getting to the end and thinking, I have no idea what just happened, and then having to go back to the beginning and, and read it again. That's perfectly normal. So you should know that that's probably going to happen to you, especially during your first semester, because you're getting used to the language and so forth. You need to leave yourself time to be able to read cases more than once. Now, I promise you that by the time you are three L's, you will just be whipping through these cases, no problem. But when you are first years, it's going to take extra time. So I leave yourselves that extra time. And I would think of law school differently from college. So don't think of this experience as an extension of college. Instead, think of law school as the beginning of your professional careers. So just as when you have a job, you would be expected to show up at the beginning of the workday and work through the entire workday till the day is over, so too should you approach your law school education. So your workday will include some hours in the day when you're in class. That's part of your workday. But the rest of those hours when you're not in class, read. Read. Get ready for class. Because if you are that disciplined about it, if you chip away at it every day, you're going to be fine. You're going to be able to keep up with things. All right, so that's your first tip. You've got to keep up with the reading. Now, as you're doing this reading, you really are going to find it gets easier as time goes on. So part of it is the language will become more familiar. And another part of it is that you will find that no matter the subject area, in most cases, you're actually reading for the same sorts of things over and over again. So once you can kind of master what these things are, it becomes a little less mysterious. So here's kind of a laundry list of things that you might look for no matter what class you're reading for. Um, so things like this. You need to know the facts of the case. So your typical softball first question you're going to get in class would be, Mr. Jones, can you please recite the facts of Lucy versus Zimmer? And so what you're being asked there is, what happened? Who did what to whom? Why are we in, in court at all? Like, who are the parties and what is the dispute? All right, so that's kind of the story. You also want to look for the procedural posture. So the procedural posture is usually going to be a paragraph somewhere in there that is going to tell you how we ended up in this specific court. So actually, you'll look in two places. First, you'll look at the title of the case, and that usually will tell you, you know, this is the um, Supreme Appellate Court of the state of whatever. You know, it'll tell you which court you're in, or this is a trial court, or what have you. And then usually there's also a paragraph in the body of the case itself that will tell you, OK, this case is here on appeal 
from this trial court, and then this is the specific issue that we are looking at. So you want to look for that. Is this an opinion that was authored by a trial court judge? Because if it was, uh, trial court judges, I think you heard from Professor Spencer today about the, the life of a case. So trial court judges have lots of discretion to really kind of look at things. Um, you know, they're the ones who are seeing witnesses, seeing evidence. Uh, if instead what you're reading is an opinion by an appellate court, and most of your cases are going to be appellate court cases. That's typically what you read in classes. Uh, if that's the case, appellate courts in the United States um, are limited to looking at the particular issue that has been teed up to them. So to get to an appellate court, you have to have properly preserved an error uh, by objecting to it at the trial court level. You have to have raised it on appeal. And then the appellate court, they're not going to be bringing in witnesses themselves. They're not going to be interviewing the witnesses or looking at the exhibits or anything like that. They're going to be mostly reading uh, papers. And so because of that, appellate courts are not going to review a trial from start to finish. They're just going to be looking at the specific question that has been raised on appeal. Some of you out there may be LLM students from other countries. Uh, not every country has this system. I taught this past summer in Germany, and they were telling me about how their appellate courts have a much broader scope of discretion. But in the United States, our appellate courts are going to be looking just at the specific issue that was raised on appeal. So you might want to be looking for that. And there's usually going to be some sentence in there that will tell you what the level of review is. So if the appellate court says, you know, this kind of question we're allowed to review de novo, that means from the beginning, that tends to be a question of law. So maybe it's a, an interpretation of what a statute means. That means the appellate court's going to get to decide what its own judgment is about this. Uh, but there are other issues, like issues of fact, you know, was this witness credible or not, something like that, where the appellate court's uh, review is going to be more limited. And so there they might be looking to see whether the trial court's decision was clearly erroneous, whether there was an abuse of discretion. So that kind of language, you'll start noticing that. And the reason you care about that is because when the professor's talking to you in class, you will understand like what the court was allowed to do and what the court was not allowed to do. So if the professor asked you a question in an appellate case about something that was not actually properly before the court, it wasn't a question that was actually raised in the appeal, it would be smart of you to know that, to know kind of what the parameters were of what the, the court was able to say. So that's all going to show up in the procedural posture paragraph. All right, you're also going to want to be able to identify the holding of the case. So I think you heard a little bit about this from per Professor Kendrick, but it's just smart to, you'll hear it again and again in your classes because it's an important thing to master. So we are part of a common law legal system. That means that what judges say about the law becomes part of the law. In fact, it can become even more important uh, than the statute itself if it's something really significant. And so that's why we're reading these judicial opinions because these are the judges saying something about the law. It becomes part of the law. And so the part that will then become part of the law and bind future judges in that jurisdiction in later cases, um, that's going to be the stuff that the judge said that was actually necessary to resolving the dispute at hand. And so that's called the holding in the case. That's the part of the case that's going to serve as precedent and that other judges in the future are going to have to follow. Now, most judges also say other stuff, other extraneous things. And so that other stuff is called dicta. 
So dicta can be beautifully written and reasoned. Sometimes dicta becomes very, very famous. There uh, absolutely are examples of dicta that become very influential and eventually are adopted by later courts and become the law. But it's really important for you as a law student and later as a lawyer to be able to distinguish between what is actually going to be binding to future courts and what isn't. So a classic example of this, you could imagine a case where somebody has driven a car through a park, a public park. And so the judge has to decide, did that action violate the law? So there's an opinion about that. But in that opinion, the judge starts musing about well, what would have happened if this person had ridden a scooter through the park instead. So the stuff about the scooter is dicta because there wasn't a scooter at issue in this case. The stuff about the car is going to be the holding of the case. So then you can imagine that you are uh, a lawyer in a future case, and your client's got a scooter and has ridden the scooter through the public park. So you've got this other case where the judge talked about scooters. So you might bring that case to the court's attention. You certainly should if it's helpful to you, if the language is useful, especially if it's well-reasoned. But you'd want to be careful to acknowledge that it's not actually binding on the court that that stuff was all dicta, and yet is extraordinarily persuasive because the judge who wrote it is somebody really famous, or because the logic of it is flawless, or, or what have you. So you need to understand um, the significance of cases that you're citing, and holding in dicta is a big part of it. Another thing you'll want to look for, thinking about holding in dicta, um, is uh, are there issues of precedent that the judge authoring this opinion had to struggle with? So sometimes you will see interesting discussions in cases where the judge will talk about previous cases in his jurisdiction that are leading him to a particular uh, outcome. So in Lucy versus Zemmer, you saw lots of discussions about, like, here's what the uh, restatement of contracts says, and so this is persuasive to us. So that kind of thing, like how much of this, and, and by the way, things like restatements are not actually binding, but the judge thought it was important. Uh, but if you see discussions about that, like trying to square what this judge wants to do with what happened in the past, that is going to be important as well. So that you'll pay attention to, and you might get questions about that. And if you are reading a case from the Supreme Court, the US Supreme Court, sometimes you will see really interesting discussions where the Supreme Court will say, well, in the past, the law has been so-and-so, but we're going to change it today. And now we're going we're gonna to go a different way. So if you see that, definitely underline it. That stuff's going to be important, and you'll be asked about that in class. Okay, you also want to figure out what are the facts, you, you figured out the facts of the case, you figured out the story, now you want to think about what are the facts that are really essential to this holding, and how might um, this opinion change if some of the facts were to change? So that is a classic question you might get in a class. So the professor might say to you, this case was about driving a car through a park, what if I were to change the facts and say that it is a scooter? Uh, what then? How would, how would it come out then? And so then you'd want to be paying attention to like, okay, well, what was important about the fact that it was a car and is the scooter analogous in some way or not? Can I distinguish it? So you'll, you'll think about that. You want to think about where the case fits into the course overall. So this is something you start thinking about maybe a little further on into the semester. Once you've been doing this for a month or so, I think it is smart to take a look back at your syllabus or the course book itself, like the table of contents, and try to figure out like where are we in the big picture of torts or contracts or what have you. So you have a sense of kind of where you are in the progression and how what you're reading today has built on what has come in the past. 
Uh, and then finally, you want to notice important text. So when you are called upon in class, sometimes you're just paraphrasing what's happening, but sometimes you really need to be able to point to the actual language in the case that's important. So here are the times where the text is going to be important. If the court says, I am now establishing a three-pronged test, okay, underline that. That text is important. And so when the, when the professor says to you, what is the holding here? You go to the three-pronged text and read it out loud. And probably what the discussion's going to be is you parsing that text really carefully. Or if the court says, we hereby define negligence or whatever as blah, 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 underline that. That's important text. So anything like that where it seems like they're pronouncing a sort of a rule, a new rule you're going to follow, or some sort of definition, that text is likely to be important. You're going to talk about it in class, and you're going to find that the best lawyers are often the ones who can parse text most uh, carefully and, and most convincingly. All right, so those are all the things that you are reading for. And as you are reading, if you are in a Socratic class, you should also be taking notes. And I think it is helpful to think of these notes as creating a visual aid that is going to help you in class. So I'm going to tell you about the strategy that I used when I was a law student. So you could just copy this. You could do exactly the way I did it. Or you could figure out your own system. It doesn't have to be my system. The point is just to have a system. You need something so that when you get into class, you can look at your notes and they are organized in some way so that if you are called upon and you're having to think under pressure, you're going to be able to handle it because you're going to be able to find the material. All right, so the system that I used when I was a law student involved reading my casebook, and I would take notes in the casebook itself. And so I think that can be helpful if it turns out you are going to have to find the actual text of the opinion and talk about that. But then in addition to that, I had separate uh, one-page notes about each case, which are called briefs. Um, and so I used those as well. So you guys have these. I think they emailed them to you. And then we also uh, had them here available today as handouts. So if there's anybody who doesn't have this handout, you want to put your hand in the air? Anybody? I've got one down here. Is Kate or, or uh, Dean Davies, are any of you still in this room? I mean, two over here. We got extras anywhere? I see, I see a helpful uh, 2L running to get you handouts. Oh, here we go. Okay, so put your hands back up in the air if you need them. Two down here, two down there, a couple in the, in the center. Thank you, Warren. Okay, so, um, so using the case of uh, Lucy versus Zemmer, I will talk you through the way that I uh, did this. And, and let me just say that the briefing a case thing, your peers, the 2Ls and 3Ls may tell you, oh, this is a really long system. Like, don't bother. Don't bother doing this. Uh, and I will respectfully disagree with them. And the reason that I will disagree with them is because, um, first, it really is helpful to have a visual aid to, to help you answer questions in class. But secondly, this is a way of making sure that you are noticing the important stuff, and it is a way of learning. So what you're going to be doing is reading the case, taking notes in the case. So that's you know one or two kind of swipes through the case. And then creating this brief to help you in class. So that's kind of a third process through the case. Then you talk about it in class. That's a fourth time through the material. Then you look at it again when you're creating an outline to study for class. Outlining is going to be a separate topic that Dean Davies will lead for you uh, at a future date. But that's you know yet another look through the material. Uh, and then you know your fifth time through is when you're kind of reviewing the class altogether for the exam. If you've gone through the material five times, you know it. That's how learning works. So that's why I think briefing can be tremendously helpful. 
All right, so the case we're going to use here is Lucy versus Zemmer. So Lucy versus Zemmer, you're going to encounter this in your first week of, um, of contracts class, I think, for most of you. And it is a Virginia case, and you're going to law school in Virginia, so I think it is appropriate that we use Virginia. Um, this is Virginia. This is the Ferguson Farm, which was a 470-acre farm located in Dinwiddie County, which is about two hours from here, a rural area. And it was owned by Mr. Zemma and his wife, Ida. And Ferguson Farm was coveted by Mr. Lucy. Mr. Lucy wanted Ferguson Farm really badly and had approached Mr. Ferguson uh, at previous times in the past trying to buy this property from him. So on this fateful day, December the 20th, 1952, Mr. Lucy entered this restaurant, Ye Old Virginie. So Ye Old Virginie is a, a gas station. That's the gas station part. And then inside it, there's, there's a restaurant. Mr. Zemmer owns it. So Mr. Lucy comes in with a bottle of whiskey in his hand and the two start drinking. So Mr. Zemmer testifies that he was high as a Georgia pine and a waitress says the men were drinking might right much. They also say things like, great balls of fire, because that's how they talk in Dinwiddie County. So <laughs> after a lot of drinking, the men agree or seem to agree that Mr. Zemmer will sell Mr. Lucy this farm. So Mr. Zemmer writes out a bill of sale on this restaurant check. So here's the check. And you can see it says, we hereby agree to sell to W.O. Lucy the Ferguson farm complete for $50,000, title satisfactory to buyer. Uh, and notice that they, both Mr. Zemmer and his wife Ida have signed this. And so the question in this case is, does Mr. Lucy get the farm or not? All right, so that's kind of your setup. Now here's the case itself in the case book. And so this gives you a sense of how I might go about um, taking notes on this case. All right, so to make it as beautiful and sparse as this, here was my trick. I usually would read my cases through once without doing any underlining at all. And the reason that I would do that is because otherwise, if I had a pen in my hand, I'd start highlighting and then the whole thing would be highlighted. Mm -hmm. So then I'd get to the end and it's not a very useful visual aid. So especially in the first semester, I'm gonna recommend that. Read it through once just to figure out what in the world is going on. Then you read it through a second time and now you're gonna to start to identify some of those things that were in our laundry list. So the facts, who did what to whom, you always wanna identify who is the plaintiff, who is the defendant, so you can see I've circled this here. And my system was to have things in the margins like you're seeing where it's like defendant, plaintiff, plaintiff so that I could quickly identify them. Also, people abbreviate defendant and plaintiff with those little symbols, so if you wanna be really um, um, formal, then you can, you can do it like that. All right, and then the issue in the case, so that means like what is the dispute? What is the thing that this judge is actually being asked to resolve? You want to underline the actual language of that issue in case you have to read it to the professor. And then down at the bottom, this paragraph here, this is your procedural posture. So it's telling you that there had been uh, a decision at the trial court level in which the court had said Mr. Lucy doesn't get the farm, so they're appealing. And you can see that Mr. Lucy's asking for specific performance. So that might be the kind of thing you might look up in Black's Law Dictionary, try to figure out what it is. Specific performance means he wants the actual farm. He wants them to actually have to uh, go forward with this contract. All right, then in the middle here, 
you've got some pieces of evidence that help Mr. Lucy and others that help Mr. Zimmer, but you can see they're kind of intertwined, and it goes on several pages after more facts like this. And so this is where I might use colored highlighters. So I've taken Mr. Lucy's facts and turned them green, and then Mr. Zemmer's facts are yellow. And the reason that's helpful is, a common question you might get is, you know, Ms. Smith, can you please make the best argument that you can on behalf of Mr. Lucy or on behalf of Mr. Zemmer? So if you're able to pick out the facts that are most useful, you're going to be able to answer that question in class. All right, so that's, that's what, uh, this is one visual aid I'd come into class with, my case book tidily notated like that. And then here's my case brief. So it's that same information, but now I've put it into this document. So this literally is a form that I started using in law school and that you can use too if you want. So every case, I just had this on my computer and I would just type in, like, what's the name of the case? Who are the parties? What's the issue? What's the procedural posture? Are there facts that are important? Uh, and, and so forth, and the, the second part of it is the holding and, and whatnot. Um, so again, the discipline of identifying these things for each case is really helpful, but you'll see it just kind of maps onto what you were seeing in the case book, except for the part about facts for Zemmer and facts for Lucy. So there, I've taken them out of order, so in the case they appear in different places, but I've put them in columns, and the idea there is I'm anticipating I might have to answer a question you know, Mr. Lucy is going to say this was a contract that looks completely clear, you know, on its face, and Mr. Zemmer is going to say things like, Mr. Lucy tried to get me drunk. So you want to be able to make those arguments. All right, so that's your brief, and here's the second part of the brief. Who wins, Mr. Lucy, and why is that? What's the holding? And so, that, and then this is the sort of thing that you will be talking about in class and that Professor Heightens will talk about in just a second. Now, I would say another important step here. If you've gone through and done this reading and you've created this brief, you're going to be ready for class. But then once you get to class, you might hear things in the discussion that you didn't realize were important. And so it is smart to go back after class to your brief and add that stuff in. So maybe you're just correcting the brief, or maybe you've got uh, an additional paragraph. And in that additional paragraph, it's you know what was discussed in class. Because that might help you figure out where this case fits into the grand scheme of things. All right, so you've done all this work. Now let's imagine that you are in class, and the professor calls on you. The professor says, Mr. Smith, please recite the facts of this case. What do you do? So the first thing that you do is you will feel that jolt of adrenaline. Everybody does that, oh, oh no, I'm being called on feeling. So the first thing that you need to do is take a deep breath. And that is just useful information anytime you feel that kind of panic. If you take a deep breath and let it out, it helps get a hold of the adrenaline. The adrenaline's never going to go away altogether. So your job is just to try to keep it uh, at bay, keep it manageable so you're able to answer. It's perfectly normal to feel anxious. You take the deep breath. And then you say to yourself, you got this. You got this. Because if you did this work, if you created this brief and did this reading, you know as much about this case as any of your classmates do. You have figured out as much as they've been able to figure out. You're not going to look like an idiot. You will be able to answer these questions. So you've done the work. Tell yourself, I got this. And then I would recommend blocking out your classmates. I would recommend just ignoring them and focusing just on the professor. So listen to what the professor is asking you. And think of it like a conversation. You've had a million conversations in your life. This is just another one. And I promise you, the professor is actually trying to help you. Most of the professors at UVA are really pretty nice. And, and it helps us if you get the right answer, because then we can move on to the next thing. So, 
So the professor will often kind of throw out for you what it is, where, where they're wanting you to go. So if you can listen, if you can stay calm and listen, you're gonna be able to figure it out. So you hear the question, answer it. And try practicing answering confidently. Even though you won't be feeling confident, nobody does the first time or two. Pretend that you are because that's part of the job. You are practicing being professional. You are practicing putting on your game face. So even if you are not sure of the answer, try to sound sure, try to sound professional and articulate. And if you feel like you didn't sound professional and articulate, that's okay. I can tell you all kinds of stories of being called on in class myself and sounding like an idiot and feeling like my career is over. And I'll tell you that none of the professors remember it. None of my classmates remember it. And all you gotta do is just pick yourself up and keep moving forward, try again. Now, if you are not called on, you still need to pay attention. So just because you weren't called on doesn't mean you then tune out. Because the knowledge is cumulative, you need to continue to listen. And I would be taking notes on like, what is, what is the professor asking this person? Because that's gonna help you figure out what's important in the class. You also may hear um, positions you don't agree with. I mean, in law school, we talk about some pretty tricky stuff. We talk about abortion and gun control and all kinds of things that people feel strongly about. And so you may hear people advocating positions that you don't like. And sometimes you may be asked to advocate positions you don't actually agree with yourself because that's part of the training, being able to make an argument. So another thing that you're practicing in class is civility. You're practicing figuring out how to agree with people, uh, how to disagree with people agreeably. So you're disagreeing by disagreeing about ideas. You're not attacking people as human beings. And the appropriate thing to say to somebody after class when they've been called on is, good job. Because it's really hard. Answering questions in class is hard. But it gets a lot easier the more you do it. And I promise you that by the time you are three L's, you're going to feel a lot better about this stuff because you will have practiced. So the final thing I want to say is I want to say one thing about the fact that you are law students here at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville right at this time. So uh, you may be surprised to find yourself here in this town where suddenly you are like the center of the universe. Everybody is looking at Charlottesville. Uh, and that may, have, that may have astonished you and maybe it's made you feel a little bit anxious or concerned. Um, and I would say this, you are the center of the universe. You right now are surrounded by history. History is happening right here and you get to watch it. And not only that, you get, to get the, you get to acquire the legal training that will give you the insider's view about this. You are gonna understand what the First Amendment is about. You're gonna understand our legal history. You're gonna understand the power of the law and you're gonna be able to do things with that. So I encourage you while you are here to notice that you're part of history and make a decision for yourself about what you want to do as part of that history and what you want to do with the, the skills and the tools that you're going to be acquiring here in law school. And I hope that you do fantastic things with it. So thank you very much. I'm going to turn the podium now. Over to you.